1: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Each month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in Genocide Studies. Every once in a while, I read a book that dramatically revises the way I look at an event or a question. Today's guest, Robert Donier, has written just such a book. Bob is an expert in the Balkans and the author of several studies of the region, and has written a new book, a superb biography of Radovan Karadzic, the leader of the Bosnian Serbs for much of the 1990s. Published by Cambridge University Press, the book uses a wealth of new sources to track Karadzic's evolution from tolerance to racism, his relationship from Slobodan Milo- with Slobodan Milosevic, and the emergence of mass violence in Bosnia. It's a book everyone interested in the subject should read, and I'm really looking forward to talking with him today. So with that, Bob, thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies, and welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, Kelly. Good to be with you. So why don't we start just by asking you to talk a little bit about who you are? What's your background? How did you get interested in the Balkans? How did you end up becoming an academic?
0: I am an historian by training. I got a PhD in history at the University of Michigan way back in 1976. And from the beginning of my career was interested in What was then Yugoslavia, and the way in which uh, Yugoslavia went through the process of becoming a more European, more modern uh, society. Um, So, as a part of that, I spent some time in uh, Sarajevo, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, in uh, 1974-75, doing dissertation research for a previous book that I, I wrote. Um, the evolution of my career from that point uh, was rather indirect. I spent some time working for Merrill Lynch and then was uh, doing academic work uh, only um, after about 2000, but in the meantime got, uh, of course, very concerned and interested in uh, the uh, events in the war. Uh, uh, in the uh, former Yugoslavia, specifically Bosnia, that uh, raged from 1992 to 1995. And that indeed is the origins of the book that uh, we're talking about today.
1: So can I ask, I, most of our listeners are probably old enough to remember this. What What was your experience like watching the war as it unfolded? What do you remember about Observing the war in the 1990s and how you felt about it then?
0: Well, at that time, the war, I think, came through the media as uh, one of two um, sort of major uh, developments in the region. And the first interpretation that you got from the, the media, I think, was that this was a war of all against all, a spontaneous eruption of violence amongst people who never got along and had always engaged in one another, uh, in in violence against one another. And the other image that came through was of a long-standing conspiracy on the part of the Serbs of the former Yugoslavia to build an expansive Serb state and to eliminate all those peoples and actors who stood in their way. Uh, That is still the way I believe uh, those two interpretations, I, I think, are still dominant in the minds of most people who watch the conflict from a distance through the media. Mm-hmm. In that. And so my response to that at the time, and it continues to be today, is that neither interpretation is anywhere near an accurate mm-hmm. representation of, of what went on. And so the... My understanding of, it, of the conflict from knowing the region and from having spent a great deal of time studying the sources and so on uh, is that this was an event of relatively recent political history, which had its origins in the actual breakup of Yugoslavia in the um, early 1990s, and that was the uh, source of the path to war.
1: And so, what? Let me press you a little bit more. How did you feel about what, what was your own emotional response to, to that kind of reporting that was going on?
0: Well, I was uh, deeply concerned and um, upset about the misrepresentations that I saw going on in the media, particularly the misrepresentations of the history of the region. Mm. And that was, in fact, the motivation for a book that I. Uh, wrote with a co-author at the University of Michigan, um, uh, John Klein, uh, which we published in, um, in 1994, called Bosnia and Herzegovina, A Tradition Betrayed. Hmm. In this book, we tried to show that the more dominant history of Bosnia and Herzegovina was one of coexistence and tolerance among these people, and that the outbursts of violence were aberrations within that history, often cited by the intervention of outside forces, whether they were neighboring outside forces such as um, from Serbia and Croatia, or more distant outside actors uh, such as the Habsburg monarchy uh, in the er- earlier period and uh, other imperial interlopers.
1: So let's skip ahead, I guess, a little bit. What why? Why did you decide then to write a biography of Karadzic?
0: The biography of Karadzic came to my mind as almost a last resort to what hmm. I was trying to do uh, for a years. years. Um, starting in 1997, I was called as a witness in a number of um, trials at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, Uh, in The Hague uh, to provide historical background to events that were alleged in the various indictments. And so I had an opportunity through about 15 of these trials um, to get to see and in a few cases rather nominally at least to get to know some of the people who were accused of the most heinous war crimes Hmm. at time. And I've had the consistent impression from meeting these people or seeing them in, co- in court and watching them uh, behave over the course of the time that I was in there that these were, in fact, rather ordinary or let's say unremarkable people. Mm-hmm. The notion that every one of these folks was a monster, was a psychopath, uh, was a crazed killer simply didn't uh, bear itself out as I watched these hmm. people in the room. So I felt there was a need to understand uh, at least a couple of the key players and how they came to, how these rather, let's say, uh, unremarkable people came to commit these pain attacks. And that, to me, was the most important part of the history of the war that had yet to be explained. And when I had to justify uh, in Karajic's case in 2010, and to spend, it was about 24 hours altogether courtroom time in uh, exchanges, verbal exchanges with him, that was what sealed my decision to seek to write a biography of Karzic based on the documentation that I had access to and our encounters in the courtroom, which enabled me to see how he reacted, how he behaved when confronted with some of these um, allegations. Can,
1: can you say a little bit about, you, you mentioned the, the documentation for the trials. Can you say something about um, what kind of sources you had available and, and how you how you secured access to those sources? Yes. Uh,
0: the sources that uh, I used were assembled originally by the Office of the Prosecutor at the mm-hmm. trib- in order to document the uh, crimes that the prosecutors alleged were committed by the, um, uh, by the accused. Now that corpus of documents grew immensely over time. It's today, something like 9 million documents <laughs> in, in the custody of the, uh, tribunal, uh, either in copy or in original. <laughs> and so, um, I was asked to review some of this documentation, obviously, a small, very small portion of it, in preparation for my testimony about the historical background of the conflict. And each time that I testified in the case, I was given a, a new, different corpus of documents to go over. Hmm. Now, they were given to me under the presumption of confidentiality. However, over time, as they were admitted into evidence in various cases, they entered the public domain so that um, I was able then to use them to write a history or a biography of Karajic, uh as well as to have initially reviewed them uh, as a part of preparation for my testimony. This amounted to a substantial body of documentation but also was probably the most important uh, selection of documents from this enormous collection, Mm. you know, had assembled. And that just gave me, uh, I would say, an insight uh, and sense a storyline to follow as I was able to then convert that into a a book about characters of Hmm.
1: Is it... So, so although I started life as a Habsburg historian, I guess well, not started life, but started academic life. Um, but I've kind of left that a little bit. Is it is it a fair reading of the historiography to say that there's a flood of books that come out in the '90s, and then actually there's not been that many examinations of the war in the last decade, or or, or a little more than that? Is that a fair summary?
0: I I think it is fair. I think that. The, the uh, mountain of volumes that came out in the 1990s, largely by journalists or people who had mm-hmm. some first-hand experience and observation of the war, um, it was, was actually extremely helpful in understanding the, the, the nature of the war and what led to it. But from that point on, I think the attention focused more upon the, the, the trials at the tribunal rather than on the war itself in terms of let's say public awareness of mm-hmm. uh, the region and it's only in the last few years that we've seen I think some uh, very fine studies based on some of the documentation um, that the Hague tribunal brought together and some of the other documents that um, have been made available by the various uh, uh, governments and Players and uh, actors in the war. That we really started to see, a, let's say, a, a, another another generation of studies mm-hmm. of war uh, start to come out, and uh, again revise our understanding of how the conflict developed.
1: Well, let's let's turn to the book and may, uh, let, let's start, if you don't mind, by by having me ask you to introduce us to Radovan Kurjic. Um Where was he born? What kind of childhood did he have? What can you say about him before he becomes politically important and influential?
0: Well, Radovan Karadzic is a fascinating individual in that his childhood, while it was a very difficult um, childhood, uh, and his early adulthood um, really had nothing nothing spectacular about them. He was um, not noted for um, being a particularly cruel person or violent person. In fact, he, was, he seemed to have charmed those people who came to know him uh, in the first 45 years of his life. He was born in July of 1945, Coincidentally, so 47 days after I was born. Hmm. And uh, so he grew up in those immediate post-war years in Yugoslavia, which were extremely difficult economically. He was from a peasant family in Montenegro, uh, in a uh, very small mountainous part of uh, of the former Yugoslavia, and at age 15, moved to Sarajevo, which then became his adopted hometown, got an education as a medical doctor, and specialized training as a psychiatrist. So, during the socialist period, he distinguished himself by being a uh, respectable professional person who, um, although he certainly engaged in some questionable uh, practices financially as a a psychiatrist, nevertheless Hmm. uh, maintained a practice. At the local hospital in uh, Sarajevo, seems to have had friends from all walks of life, from all uh, ethnic and uh, religious communities, and to have been a constructive member of the community. All that changed in 19, when he turned uh, 45 in 1990, just as Yugoslavia was uh, breaking up, and the first Mozart the party elections were held, and with no political background whatsoever, of Karadzic, because of his uh, extensive network of friends and and the high regard that he was held by uh, the Serbs, uh, Nationalists in particular, was selected as president of the newly founded uh, Democratic Party. And that launched him on a career as the head of the Bosnian Serbs that lasted actually until 1996, and that meant that he was in charge or, and certainly the leader of the Bosnian Serbs throughout the war and throughout the atrocities and violence that were committed by Bosnian Serbs um, during those uh, five years.
1: So, so let's take a step back briefly, and then I'll, then I'll return to him as a politician. So, so many in our audience are familiar with the, the war in Bosnia, and but but some are not. So, could you? And I know I'm asking you an impossible question, but I'll do it anyway. Could you maybe summarize fairly quickly the the situation Bosnia and Yugoslavia at the late 1980s and kind of set the stage for the rest of our discussion? Yes, the
0: story I think starts with. Uh, or it can be started with the death of Tito in 1980. He was a figure that was revered in um, former Yugoslavia, and he was really the only political leader of great influence in that time. With his death, the ethnic tension, which had been very largely uh, subdued from the period from 1945 to 1980 began to resurface and the state itself, uh, the federal government of Yugoslavia was subjected to uh, considerable rivalry, uh, and, um, eventually to, in turn, the electoral process, um, divisions among the, um, the ethnic groups. So in 1990, when elections were held throughout the country, nationalists came to power. And these nationalists of all groups turned out, unsurprisingly, uh, to be incapable of working together and rather turned to undermining one another and, in the process, undermining the state. The strongest group to emerge from this was, in fact, the Serbs of Yugoslavia because largely they were the ones who were able to... The resources of the Federal Army, the Yugoslav People's Army, and that gave them a near monopoly on force as Yugoslavia was uh, breaking apart. And indeed, it was the Yugoslav People's Army that uh, prosecuted, first of all, the war in uh, Slovenia uh, in uh, June and July of 1991, and then in Croatia. The
1: remainder in 1991, and finally in Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1992 and onward. And so, in particular, in Bosnia, what is is there a sense in the Serbian community in, say, the mid 80s um, that their position is threatened, that there is a need to work toward autonomy? what kind of history do they remember and what lessons do they learn from it in the mid-'80s as opposed to the early-'90s?
0: That's a very good question, and the answer to it really isn't known for sure. Mm. The, it's very clear that the political elites amongst the Serbs believed and promoted the notion that Serbs were being discriminated against were threatened and, in fact, had been the victims of genocide, uh, not only during World War II, but also in the um, latter years of Socialist Yugoslavia. So that there certainly was genuine fear on the part of uh, these political elites that they were being marginalized and that their constituents were being discriminated against. But it, it appears, anyway, that the um, the population as a whole, was very slow to come over to this viewpoint mm-hmm. and until uh, really quite late in the process, continued to support uh, the um, multi-aspect communists and to at least retain some support for the notion of a multinational uh, Yugoslavia of, uh, of equality of people. So, the um, story of the late 1980s really is one of Leviton Milosevic as the president of Serbia and eventually Yugoslavia promoting an ideology that emphasized fear and victimhood on the part of the Serbs. And that was the thing that mobilized uh, both the Serbs and the Yugoslav People's Army into uh, launching these, what were viewed always as defensive or protective action uh, against those other peoples in Yugoslavia and most specifically the Croats and the Muslims of Bosnia and Herzegovina who are today known as um, Mm-hmm.
1: And you you mentioned Milosevic. Can, can you just really briefly kind of summarize who he was and, and how he came uh, to be the leader of that nationalist uh, sentiment?
0: Yes. Um, Zeloshevich was uh, born in Serbia, a Serb uh, who was actually uh, of no particular consequence until he uh, was mentored into the, the League of Communists and into the business, uh, financial business, uh, both as a banker and as a head of a uh, gas company um, by senior people in the party within Serbia. He distinguished himself in 1987 by siding openly with Serbs uh, on a trip down to uh, Kosovo, which has a largely Albanian population. Uh, and from that point on, broke all the rules of hmm. leadership, uh, which said that the, such conflict should always be ironed out within the, within the party, and became a populist hero who is mobilizing this sense of anger, uh, frustration, uh, and discrimination on the part of Serbs? So he became known as a proponent of um, Serb control of Yugoslavia or Serb domination by some other means of all the uh, policies in the area.
1: And one of the really remarkable parts of your story is the depth with which you're able to consider and kind of discuss the relationship between Karadzic and Milošević. So, so where does that relationship stand in, uh, at the point where, he, where Karadzic emerges as the leader of the Bosnian Serbs? The
0: um, source of our knowledge about that relationship is largely in the telephone intercepts, um, the intersections that were made by the government of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Unfortunately, <laughs> every telephone call that took place between the two of them. (laughs) So we know, for example, that uh, the two of them met for the first time in 1990, that Milosevic supported Tarjic as the president of the Third Democratic Party, and that uh, uh, Tarjic viewed himself as a a, um, follower of Milosevic, readily accepted this mentorship. Mm-hmm. That lasted until about the fall of 1991 when Karadzic began to get control of things in Bosnia on his own, at which point the two of them began to drift apart. And those tensions between them increased throughout the war to the point where they, first of all, were barely speaking, and second... Uh, eventually in 1995, Milosevic, uh, outmaneuvered, uh, and essentially took over himself the leadership of the peace negotiating team that was to represent the Bosnian Serbs in, um, uh, at the Dayton Peace Talks in 1995. So that relationship really evolved over time from being one of mentorship and then close collaboration to one of considerable uh, tension, uh, rivalry, and eventually um, Milosevic purging Karadzic of at least this portion of his responsibility and taking him over himself.
1: So I've got to come back to that rather remarkable comment you made at the beginning about their phone calls being intercepted. Did, did they ever... Or do you have any evidence to think that they ever suspected their calls were being tapped?
0: <laughs> they, they appear to have known about it from the very beginning.
1: Huh.
0: Now, in part, that's because everyone was recording everyone else at that time. Our <laughs> of uh, intercepts, not only telephone intercepts, but radio intercepts, uh, throughout the wartime period, that uh, tell us a great deal about what has happened. And of course... Most of those have come into the custody now of the tribunal, and mm-hmm. have been admitted into evidence, and therefore are, are on the public record. The um, they, they, as they're talking with one another, they acknowledge that they may be there may be someone listening, huh. and develop little codes to, to remind one another that this is happening. But remarkably, it does not seem to have. Very much affected what they said to one another. The <laughs> level of candor is uh, astonishing in their conversation, and it just seems that uh, they almost forgot about the fact that others were listening.
1: <laughs> that is just amazing. So, so let me go back. Um, what did did Karajas want to be the leader of the Serbs? Did he like the job? He loved it. But uh, when he was first being
0: courted for it or considered for it, he at least pretended that he had no interest in it. Hmm. We believe that he did not seek to, uh, he didn't really want it at first because uh, he felt uh, that it would take him away from his comfortable life as a practicing psychiatrist and also something of a literary figure, I'm sorry, hmm. And involve him in, is he, he, he detested politics, he always said, and it, he thought it would involve him in this uh, kind of dirty business of day-to-day politics. Uh, but once he actually took the job, on the, and there was a specific moment in time when he walked on stage and uh, delivered his acceptance speech in July of 1991, from that moment on, he was an enthusiastic, in fact, workaholic uh-huh. of the Serbian national cause, and he um, was became remarkably effective as a charismatic leader and an organizer of various activities that turned out, of course, to be so uh, uh, violent and and um, uh, despicable uh, against directed against other peoples.
1: So, so what kind of politician was he? What what strengths did he? Do? bring to the job, what weaknesses to have?
0: He was uh, remarkably articulate. He had an innate sense of what appealed to people. He was the ultimate populist in that he could seem to be able to define exactly what Serb nationalists, or those who were prone to be nationalists, wanted to hear from a leader. And he rarely... uh, drafted a speech in advance, almost all of his speaking was spontaneous, but as you read those speeches, it comes out remarkably well-organized and articulate. So he was tremendous at delivering motivating words to his followers and to structuring um, things so that um, people would understand events. Within the context uh, that he wanted them to understand again. Uh, so he was constantly referring to contemporary events, not only in Bosnia, but all over the world, and saying, look, this, this shows that the Serbs are being discriminated against, that our enemies are plotting against us, and we have to take action in order to uh, defend ourselves and prevent them from doing these terrible
1: things to us. Did did he rule, maybe not the right word, but autocratically? To what degree did he participate with the broader base of public or political opinion amongst the Bosnian Serbs?
0: Um, uh, that's, again, a very good question. I think the, the answer is that he avoided, whenever possible, autocratic uh, rule. He, there's just no evidence he... Employed violence against other Serbs in order to get his his way. Few instances we know of uh, uh, in which he uh, had individuals singled out, uh, but very few. Uh, there, there's very little violence associated with his rule, and in fact, he maintained the uh, Bosnian Serb assembly uh, consisting of 83 delegates who were elected in the 1990 election, throughout the war. And that group met 55 times during the war. And he always sought to respect his decisions in what he did. Now, he also sought to influence his decisions. And in a few cases, with the aid of some colleagues, uh, he strong-armed decisions that it made. But by and large, he was a populist in the sense that he wanted to do things by broad consensus rather than by autocratic methods.
1: So you write that in the autumn, I think it's September, if I remember right, of 1991, uh, he underwent, uh, and I've got a quote here, a personal and political metamorphosis. Um, what happened and why did it happen?
0: Well, it's uh, part of his political maturation. He had um, spent the uh, first year of his uh, time in office as leader of the Bosnian Serb, the president of the uh, Serb Democratic Party, largely responding to events and also responding to the leadership or mentorship that Milosevic gave to him. In the fall of 1991, um, he began to discover that reacting to events was leaving him powerless, that he could not control the direction of things and was simply getting lost in his anger and frustration at what the other, uh, what he perceived as the other groups were doing uh, to him. And overnight, and we really don't understand, at least I don't uh, understand very well from the sources, exactly what sparked this transition, but he became a very careful, planning, calculating leader who was always thinking ahead several steps. Uh, If anything, it probably was the recognition that the option of remaining in Yugoslavia was dead. That happened on October 15, 1991 with the vote in the Parliament of Bosnia and Herzegovina, but it was foreshadowed uh, by, for at least a, a month and a half by other events which made that vote likely to turn out the way it did. So he began to realize that he, it was on his shoulders and his shoulders alone that uh, the leadership of the Bosnian Serbs rested. So he changed style radically, instantly, and effectively. <laughs> Um, which turned out to be something that he was able to do a number of times in his life, um, make these kind of instant radical changes in direction, even in tone, and and even in persona, um, which was one of the keys to his uh, effectiveness as a leader. Um, He could turn these corners very quickly, and people would actually follow him and um, do what he hoped they would do in a way of carrying out uh, his desires.
1: So, in the aftermath of this, you, you say that the, he, he understands that, I don't know, the future or the fate or however you want to put it, of the Bosnian Serbs rests on him. How does he imagine that future in the fall of 1991?
0: It's very clear that he imagines this future as a Bosnia and Herzegovina, devoid of all but Serbs, hmm. uh, or all but, but perhaps with a few elderly uh, members of other groups still in, in existence. But people fantasize that they entertain fantasies of a mass destruction of non-Serbs, particularly of the Bosniaks in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And he also planned that uh, the Serbs would take over Bosnia, one local community after the other is a very carefully and um, skillfully designed plan, uh, and in the process, assure serb control and serb habitation of those areas that were taken over. That was his vision of a Serb uh, Bosnia Herzegovina. With very few non Serbs in it and with political control exclusively in the hands of Serb nationalists who would follow you know, the uh, course uh, that the mother republic, the Republic of Serbia, would follow.
1: And, and you start out the book by talking about how he's, as, as, as you suggested, he mixed uh, socially with a variety of people. He seems to have no. Uh, fundamental prejudice or or at least you no know, hatred of the Serbs. By this point, has has that kind of emotional response to events emerged? Is he, I guess, racist is maybe the right term by that point. Um, it, it, it's um, probably a
0: stretch to use the word racist, uh-huh. but in a sense, it's not wholly inappropriate to, to use it. Um, the, the sense in which it's not perhaps quite right is that he came to detest and hate the leaders of the rival groups. Mm. Um, when it came to the masses, his pronouncements and statements at that time, even in these uh, telephone calls and in uh, private conversations, were, were not so much a reflection of hatred As they were of, um, let's say, disregard and unconcern for their welfare, uh, or for 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 them. In other words, he was uh, practicing studied neglect as a basis for doing uh, these terrible things to them um, later on, rather than, let's say, the kind of intense, obsessive hatred that. Hitler had for the Jews, um, and I concluded looking at it that in a sense this indifference is perhaps in some respects more dangerous than the overt hatred huh. uh, in terms of a source of uh, later violence, because it is um, overt hatred is immediately telegraphed to people around uh, the, the, the person who's Aspire into leadership on the basis of hatred. Uh, and that makes it extremely difficult, uh, at least in normal situations, for that person to gain a lot of followers. But this uh, neglect and indifference uh, simply kind of flies by the populace uh, and is not then really magnified uh, in such a way as to. Um, Draw attention
1: to the dangers that the person presents. Violence or war begin. What what is the plan? What character does this war take? And and how responsible was Krajitch in, in in late 1991 and early 1992 for the nature of this warfare?
0: Well, the um, fact of the matter is that. Karadzic's plan, and they weren't exclusively his plans, but the plans of the Bosnian Serb leadership were implemented to a T in the period from early April until about the end of July 1992. Mm -hmm. Bosnia was indeed taken over by local Serb leaders, one municipality at a time always with the backing of the Yugoslav People's Army and local paramilitary forces and, of course, the party itself, the Democratic Party. And that gave this war a peculiar quality. It was extremely violent, but it was also extremely localized in character. So a lot of responsibility fell upon these local leaders' Of the uh, Serb Democratic Party, the SDS, to carry out these purges, expulsions, and even killings uh, of uh, local non Serbs to purify their um, municipality of all the Serbs. That continued, as I say, for about the first three months of the war, and then began to assume. Uh, the character of a more conventional war, as those who were being uh, driven out got better organized polit- uh, militarily and were able to put up some resistance. But that first phase of the war, during which the Bosnian Serbs conquered about 70% of Bosnia, was the time when many atrocities took place, uh, when in my view, the genocide actually uh, commenced and resulted in the complete uh, redrawing, if you will, of the map, uh, the demographic map of Bosnia.
1: So, starting even before that violence, and then continuing on for the next uh, couple years, three years, is, is this kind of parallel set of negotiations with Europeans and world leaders who are trying to broker some kind of peace settlement in the region. How did Karadzic? See the people he was negotiating with and, and how did these European and, and other leaders see him? Uh,
0: the negotiations uh, began actually uh, even before Cargis, uh showed up on the scene with the intention of um, European uh, community, now European Union negotiators uh, in uh, June of 1991 but uh, in the fall of 1991, Karadzic first became engaged in negotiations on behalf of the Bosnian Serbs, largely under Velosevic's uh, tutelage. But uh, by 1992, he was standing on his own two feet and uh, had direct contacts and relations with international actors. The international actors always viewed him with some suspicion, he was a dynamic, charismatic, and rather large person. So he, he was definitely a, a, a factor to be reckoned with uh, by all of the internationals. And they, in a sense, respected him for his, let's say, authority and authoritative manner. But they were always looking at what was happening on the ground and seeing that there was a great deal of uh, gratuitous violence going on, uh, that human rights were being violated, and they could never pin him down, that is, pin cartridge down, uh, to uh, actually promise and fulfill his promises to end that violence. So, very quickly, the international viewed him with suspicion and eventually with. Or say is seeing him as a as a, an evil um, and faithless negotiator.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, on the other hand, Carter I think always underestimated the authority that the internationals brought to the table. Uh, he was in his private uh, communications generally disparaging of the people that sat across the table from him uh, and contemptuous, in particular, of the uh, German and American diplomats who he we thought were uh, always committed to try and uh, uh, get revenge against Serbs.
1: During this period, was there ever any real chance of a deal?
0: I think there was.
1: Um, but the
0: demands, the expectations that the Serbs had, based on their backing by the Yugoslav People's Army and the extravagant sense of the claims that they uh, uh, prosecuted really made it difficult for them to accept um, the possibility of a compromise arrangement. Uh, and on the other hand, the uh, other two parties to the conflict, the uh, and the Bosniaks, themselves had very high expectations and felt themselves being uh, crowded uh, by the Serbs and uh, found, it, uh, found themselves unable to uh, accept the demands that the Serbs were making in the negotiations. Um, so it, it really came down to a situation where uh, one side had the confidence that it would be back militarily. Uh, by the Yugoslav People's Army, mm. and the other side realizing that they would have to fight uh, in order to prevent uh, a conquest, a political conquest, in a sense, uh, of the Serbs, of all of Yugoslavia.
1: And then in early 95, the strategic situation changes, as I read your book, with the, with the Bosnian Serb forces Beginning to see reverses. How does how does Karadzic respond to that? We, indeed, we have uh, jumped over a great deal of strategic uh,
0: change uh, when moving to 1995.
1: And, and yeah, yeah, and feel free to summarize that if you want.
0: Yes, yeah. but I think just, uh, it, it, it's justified like just to do that. Um, the uh, Bosniaks and the Croats had, in the meantime, fought a war which was a bloody war and a a very violent time, Uh, but uh, owing to U.S. intervention, they patched up those differences uh, in early 1994 and, again, become allies, Uh, certainly not um, good friends, but uh, were at least uh, uh, coordinating some of their battlefield efforts against the Serbs. And in the um, early uh, spring of... 1995, those efforts, uh, particularly by the Croat forces, but also by the Bosniaks, produced for the first real victories over uh, Serb forces on the battlefield, this spread panic through the entire Bosnian Serb leadership. And Karjic, who was not particularly prone to panic, Was also caught up in concern for uh, the conquest that they were seeking to defend, and hoped to at least stem the tide uh, without having to um, uh, go to extreme lengths uh, to um, reconquer the area. So, uh, in the as the international involvement deepened and the fraud at Bosniak forces advanced, Harjic and his immediate allies in the leadership adopted a very high-risk strategy trying to essentially provoke the international actors so that um, they would uh, experience sufficient humiliation and losses. That uh, the public of the contributing countries to this United Nations force would withdraw their soldiers. Well, that uh, took place in the uh, May, June, uh, July period, but uh, it really, in the in the final analysis, did not work, and it was nonetheless the decision of Paris to. Try to settle the scores once and for all in eastern Bosnia, that area closest to the Republic of Serbia, uh, and to secure a purely Serb area in Bosnia, uh, devoid of uh, virtually any non Serbs, as a definitive act. And that is the background to what became the, the best known genocide. Uh, of the war, which is the conquest in mid-July 1995 of the community of in eastern Bosnia, and the slaughter of about 8,000 mainly men uh, uh, from that community in um, the period of uh, July 11th
1: to 15th. That's actually where I was going to go. And so, so was... So what was Karadzic's role in the decision to slaughter those people?
0: Yes, he is the one who jumped the command, in a sense, and actually went out to a military headquarters in uh, eastern Bosnia. And as commander-in-chief, directed uh, one of the subordinate generals out there to prepare a plan to attack and conquer Kribenitsa. He wanted it then, as soon as possible, and so the initiative to take the city uh came from Karadzic, and he took that step in the full knowledge that the conquest of the city was likely to end in the slaughter of many of its, if not all, of its Muslim residents. Uh, however, he was not the one on the ground who actually directed the specific uh slaughter and the the, the, the means that were used to exterminate these uh, these, these uh, people to commit the genocide uh, in in July that was the role of General Ratko Mladic who was the overall commander of the Bosnian Serb forces who in a sense took off where took up where Karadzic left off uh, when he finally got there and took command of things on the ground Karadzic remained deeply involved extremely well briefed upon these measures, supported everything that um, Rodditch was ordering to be done, and defended it all afterwards, and in fact claimed credit for having mm. the slaughter, the, the genocide uh, at Srebrenica. But there was a uh, handoff in a sense of the leadership for the slaughter itself uh, in the middle of of
1: July um, when Lodge arrived on the scene. That's a remarkable statement that he later claimed credit. Is there any I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit we'll come back to the story but but is there any sense that in his later years he ever came to regret that decision or to feel like he had either done something poorly I guess politically but, but more ethically?
0: Uh, I, I have to say that um, the discovering these speeches that were made to the Bosnian Serb assembly uh, in the aftermath of the Srebrenica genocide was about the most chilling thing that I came mm-hmm. with in the course of this entire research. It, 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 some of it actually preceded the killings the, 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 uh, in Srebrenica, but uh, continued uh, in a couple of sessions after uh, the genocide, in which he and the generals, it wasn't Vladic personally, but the generals of the uh, um, Serbian army were competing with one another to claim credit for have carried out these murders the speeches by Karadzic are filled with uh, extravagant claims that he had ordered it um, he identifies the specific orders that he issued and he identifies other issues uh, orders that he did not issue but demands insist that he was responsible for these fillings as the point of pride as of seeing the uh, in a sense bravest Serve of them all, uh, the most uh, adamant in prosecuting these plans that uh, he laid some four years, five years ago before, and the um, record is devoid of any sense of regret or remorse on the part of Prydzich at any point thereafter, uh, including during the trial or uh, the various. Um, interviews and statements that he made between the time that he was, uh, um, finished the, uh, his, his, uh, was removed as president and the time that, um, uh, his trial was over, which was just a few weeks ago. Remarkable absence of any introspective, uh, reconsideration of his responsibility for these things. And, um remorse for the decisions that he made. He seems to have simply been incapable uh, psychologically of reviewing his own actions Hmm. and reflecting critically upon them.
1: Hmm. So you mentioned that he fell out of Favor at least a month with Milosevic, and, and then out of power shortly after that. W- what happened that he gets outmaneuvered and edged out of power? Uh,
0: Milosevic decided, um, sometime in about 1993, um, that uh, the war should end. The main reason that he wanted the war to end was that the Western powers through the United Nations had imposed. Uh, severe sanctions on the Republic of Serbia itself. And those sanctions were crippling Serbia, they were crippling the everyday life of Serbs, and most importantly, they were threatening Milosevic's hold on power. So he tried to persuade the Bosnian Serbs and persuade Karzic to agree to a peace uh, negotiated by international diplomats. Um, and he failed. He used increasing pressure and means of persuasion uh, to get them to do this. But in the final analysis, it came down to the fact that he decided to remove the leadership of the Bosnian Serbs, not from power completely, but from any role in negotiating a peace. And that's when, and took place just in a month after Srebrenica, happened straight underneath the genocide. Uh, and uh, basically, Milosevic put himself at the head of the delegation that associated the peace uh, agreement at the uh, end, of, end of the war at uh, Dayton.
1: Well, we're running out of time, but I've, I've got to ask you because it's, it's such an astonishing story. He's, he's indicted by the uh, ICTY in 1995, and he's not captured for... Years afterwards, how does he avoid capture for so long?
0: That, that may be the most intriguing part of his life. He was incredibly resourceful, and he was capable of making these radical changes of personality and uh, even appearance uh, that led him uh, to move to Belgrade and take up a life in disguise uh, as a psychic healer under the uh, David Davich. uh He grew his hair, which was long and wavy, of course, uh, during the war and before the war, but he grew it to considerable length. He grew a long, thick beard and put on a, a pair of thick glasses or thick looking glasses, uh, dressed himself in uh a new wave attire uh that made him look more like a um uh, uh medicinal healer uh than a normal civilian person. And he um he then successfully evaded mm. those seeking him uh until um finally he assumed too public a role Uh, as a faith healer, he began to actually become popular, making TV and radio appearances, and (laughs) someone someone recognized his voice and reported it to the authorities, uh, and right at the time that there was a change of government in Serbia, and a government that was prepared to hand him over uh, actually went out and arrested him uh, and had him immediately transported to Paid for an indictment and
1: eventual trial it's a remarkable story you you have a picture of him in his um i don't know a disguise is maybe not the right word, but with his new personality and new identity and and my eight year old daughter yesterday when I was preparing for this was trying to avoid going to bed and was asking me questions about the book and I was trying to answer them in a way that's appropriate for an eight year old and and I finally hit on the, the idea of showing her the picture on the cover with Karadzic kind of in his prime as a political leader and then showing her the picture of him and his new identity. And and she said, what I get the sense everybody else did is that doesn't look like the same person.
0: And indeed, it did not for anyone who came to know him. Uh, he quietly sat in a bar underneath his own picture, a picture of him, <laughs> and was unrecognized by the bar patrons or, or, uh, um. But I thought one of the great ironies of of this was that uh, when he you know, tells the story of getting along with all these different people in Sarajevo prior to 1990, he always refers to the barber that he went to whose uh, name was uh, uh, Mickle, which is a nickname Mm -hmm. for him. Now, that's a Muslim name. And the one thing that he obviously did not take advantage of in uh, in, uh, Belgrade was a barber. (laughs) Or a beard trim in in several years. So it appears that he was... uh, I'm only going to, have to
1: respond to a Muslim barber rather than a conservative. Oh my! Well, it's a remarkable story and very well told. We've taken a lot of your time here, so just a couple kind of concluding questions that are typical of this. And so, first, I'm wondering if you have a recommendation for people who are interested in, in, in the subject, whether it's uh, the war in Bosnia or the Balkans more generally. Do you have a, a book that you would recommend they read? Something that either you find personally meaningful or really highly instructive?
0: Uh, There actually are um, are a couple of these new books that I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier that I would consider. The one is um, a book by Adida Bechidovich called Genocide on the Drina River, which is a graphic account of the events in eastern Bosnia in 1992 uh, by a woman who, um, was a reporter throughout the war and who had many excellent, um, informants in the area and writes a, you know, a graphic and indeed chilling account of the, um, that took place in that, uh, that part of Bosnia, um, and essentially exterminated the uh, non serb population. Um, I think the. I I have a suggestion for a movie. Uh huh. It's going to sound uh, unusual, but it's um, The Act of Killing, uh huh. Which is a movie about Indonesia and the killings of over a million communists or communist sympathizers uh, in 1965 to 1966. And the reason I suggest it is that it shows a society that has never come to terms with the genocidal killings that were done by some of its citizens against others. It's almost, it's very difficult to see the end of this movie. It's so sickening. Um, but I think it's an important movie uh, or uh, film for all of us that see that, that just to get an idea of what's going to happen, how grotesque life can become when these things are not coped with, when they're not actually reckoned with in the form of some sort of transitional justice or post-conflict reconciliation.
1: Hmm. I now have more to do this weekend, and I will go off and read and watch what, you, what Do you have a project you're working on now? Well, I'm working
0: on trying to represent uh, to people the um, evolution of the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague and the various decisions that were made by the judges in that case, the people who came before the court uh, and the way in which their These were documented. On looking, in a sense, at the procedures and the process whereby we have come to know what happened during that war, how the process succeeded when it did, and ways in which it did not succeed, as a kind of a guide to future uh, uh, courts or tribunals, uh, which, of course, would be mainly the International Criminal Court in dealing with other situations of mass violence.
1: I have to say, that sounds like a fascinating project. And I hope when you're done, you'll think about coming back on the show. But for today, I just want to say thank you so much. It was wonderful and great to talk to you.
0: Well, thank you. And uh, it's good. it was good to be with you. And I thank you for your excellent questions.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Bob Donier about his book, Radovan Karadzic, Architect of the Bosnian Genocide. If you enjoyed this interview, You can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I talk with Irvin Staub about his comprehensive new book, Overcoming Evil, Genocide, Violent Conflict, and Terrorism. In the meantime, thanks for the download and have a great month.